Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello again, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens. Now, hopefully you know what this podcast is about. But for the uninitiated, I simply ask my guest, what five things from your life would you like to keep safe in a time capsule? They pick anything from any time in their life. Four things that they love and wish to preserve or see again, but also one thing that they rather regret or find embarrassing or even loathe. And then we talk about these things. Doing that in this episode is my guest, John Chalice, who is famous throughout the world for playing Aubrey Boyce or Boise in the multi-award-winning comedy Only Fools and Horses and in the spin-off show which ran for four series, Green Green Grass, both written by the brilliant John Sullivan. But that's just part of his career. He's also been in Dixon of Doc Green, The Sweeney, Doctor Who, Juliet Bravo, Coronation Street, Citizen Smith, which started his connection with John Sullivan, by the way, ever-decreasing circles, One Foot in the Grave, Open All Hours, The New Statesman, My Family, Last of the Summer Wine, and Benidorm, as well as appearing in dozens of plays and pantomimes. He's written two volumes of his autobiography and toured his one-man show, Only Fools and Boise, all over the country. He is a patron of the British Hedgehog Preservation Society. Well done. Oh, and he's also a lifelong Arsenal fan. Well, nobody's perfect. Anyway, we recorded this just before lockdown in John's hotel room in London on a rather wet and windy day. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. John, how lovely to see you, and how lovely of you to do my time capsule for me. Well, how lovely of you to ask me. <laughs> well, it gives me the chance to come to your flattered. hotel room. Yeah, deeply flattered, I am. No, no, don't be flattered. It's ridiculous. Look at your career. It's enormous. And uh, when does it all stop? 
<laughs> well, I don't know. Here we are in a hotel room yeah. uh, near Tower Bridge with a view of the bridge. It's rather lovely. It was better yesterday when it wasn't raining. Oh, right. It's beautiful. Uh, but it, it is an amazing uh, position to be in, isn't it? And a uh, bit of the old Roman and medieval wall down below us yeah. here. The extent of the city, wasn't it? So the, the early city, the, the eastern Mm. Border, I suppose. There, going down to the towers, it's just an extraordinary position to be in. Yeah, yeah. Where you, if you went over the river, you were in with the hoi polloi. Oh, we should never go south of the river. No, no, (laughs) no, no. no. You're a North Londoner, aren't you? Yes. Well, not really. No, I. When I lived in London, I lived in London, I suppose, for altogether thirty-five to forty years old of my life. But Mm. it was, it was usually south. I lived in uh, Paddington at one point, not for that long, but that was about as far north as I ever lived. Right. And then I lived in Battersea, and then then I sort of went further west and finished up around Kew, Mortlake, the end of the boat race course, (laughs) you know, that sort of area. And I I moved a lot, but I always stayed in that area. I quite Because growing up a bit in the country, I was hankered after living in the country, you know, and Mm. sort of... It's a bit spurious, really, but, I mean, there you've got Richmond Park just next to you. So uh, I thought, oh, well, this will do for the country for the moment, you know, and I had, a, I had a dog which I'd take for a walk in there, you know, and I, I enjoyed the, the whole thing about Richmond Park. So my wife comes from Dorset. Mm. My mother came from Somerset, so quite a lot of my childhood was spent uh, down there. So it's a natural progression, really, to move west, but just how far west we weren't quite prepared for. <laughs> And it wasn't until we found this extraordinary um, medieval uh, abbot's lodging of a ruined monastery that my wife had a family connection to, right. going right back to the dissolution of the monasteries. And uh, we got there, and um, oh, it was much too big, much too far away. But, I mean, most things were wrong with it, except that it was this extraordinary piece of border country right next to the Welsh border. Oh, beautiful. And space to create a garden, which was something that we wanted to do. Um, but with that personal connection, it felt like fate had taken us there, do you know? So we thought, we'll have a go. Yeah. We'll have a go, Mrs. You know. <laughs> and you bloody have, haven't you? Well, uh, 20 years later, we're still there hanging on by our fingernails, you know, um, <laughs> and still having to try and keep this pile of medieval stones together. And the garden as well. And uh, the, garden, the garden is now completely out of control. No, no, not completely, <laughs> but... Uh, I completely forgot, you see, that if you plant stuff and create a garden, it gets bigger <laughs> over 20 years. And I'm, and I'm sort of going, why can't I get round this anymore as I used to? So it's been, it's been hard work, but it's been worth it. Mm. Well, let's let's launch into our time capsule. I have this time capsule for you, and we're going to put things <clears> from your life into it. So what's your first item you'd like to put in? I, I suppose... Uh, Right from uh, the beginning, it's 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 a joke, but it's actually a sort of a true story. I was actually born in Bristol, and I was only there for about twenty minutes. Because <laughs> um, everybody says, "Oh, you're a Bristolian," and all that starts, you know. But, but in fact, I had no experience of it really, because it was during, during the war, as Uncle Albert would say, um, nineteen forty-two. I was born, and uh, and my father was in the Admiralty uh, at the time, which was based in Bath. And uh, my mother was driving ambulances uh, in Bristol during the war, and they met up and like there was no tomorrow. A lot of it, and they and they got married. And I came along the first year of marriage, but then, inconveniently, they uh, transferred the Admiralty to London. So I'm the only child who was evacuated to London during the war. <laughs> 
And I just remember, no, I don't. I, I, I pretend I remember all these, these trains going by and other kids with their gas masks and so on going, bye, <laughs> have a nice day. And I went to London, of course, which was just getting bombed to smithereens. And uh, Well, Bristol wouldn't have been a great place to live. No, no, Bristol, no they, they had to go to Bristol as well. And Bath, of course. Mm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's a, that's a first memory, but I'm sort of rather fond of it. I'm, I'm, I'm rather proud of it, in a way, you know. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I said to my father, I said, um, I said, where actually in Bristol were you born? And he said, uh, somewhere underneath the Clifton Suspension Bridge. <laughs> oh, he had a sense of humour, my dad, you know. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was in the Clifton area somewhere. But yeah. I think I don't think I was born in the hospital. I was, I was born in uh, some lodgings somewhere, I think. So I don't know where it is. A home birth or, yeah, yeah. or a guest house birth. Yes. Right. So that was that, and uh, so so I sort of grew up in London and um, finished up in Surrey, mm-hmm. and uh, had to go to school, of course, which was um, extraordinarily difficult. Difficult school. I found school quite difficult, really, yeah. because I, I think I just had a sort of a, a naturally rebellious streak about me. And people tell me this, you've got to learn this, and my attitude was, no, I'm not going to. I want to do something else, but. I don't know why, I don't know where that came from, but uh, <clears throat> there's a pattern in my life. And so I suppose uh, as school went on, I, uh, it became more and more difficult, really. I just sort of got through it, OK. But it wasn't until I was at, um, at my last school, Ottershaw, it was called uh, Near Woking, that I found the key to it, to getting through it, uh, because my attitude was, was I don't want to be at school, I want to be at home, and I want to be out in the woods and mucking about and... Uh, just mucking about, really. Yeah. <clears throat> and it wasn't until um, I got to Ottershaw that uh, I found where I was going, I suppose, in retrospect, uh, was that I found that entertaining people was where I uh, should be. And it was sort of by accident. It was the start of rock and roll, 1957, that sort of 57. <laughs> Everybody picked up a guitar and tried to sing songs, you know, and a couple of other guys were interested. And uh, we got a T-chess bass, so we started playing skiffle. We try to learn a, a few main chords, you know, and the fingers hurt, and you go, ah, you know. But uh, it takes a worried man to sing a worried. God, you know, all this went on for for ages. So we practiced, but um, you were going to be Lonnie Donegan. Yes, that's right. Um, my particular favourite was uh, was uh, an outfit called the Vipers, the Vipers Skiffle Group. Really? Yeah, I don't know them. Oh, well, I had a couple of hits. But, of course, rock and roll was banned, my school, because it just personified that sort of rebellious streak that some kids had. Right. So we actually found ourselves sort of underground, really, in the changing rooms and sort of tunnel. There was a ruined chapel in the, in the grounds at school, and we used to play in there because the echo was fantastic. <laughs> but it was all sort of, you know, it was, it was like prohibition must have been. You know, it was all sort of secret and hole in the corner. But the music master was delighted because we'd actually picked up an instrument and tried to learn it. Of course. Okay, it was a guitar, but he was, you know, he was charged with trying to teach us the violin or to sing properly or whatever it was. And, of course, it was all sort of, oh, nobody cares much about this. But and he, he actually came, and it was, a, it was a secret for him, too. He'd come and give us a few, few tips, you know, you know don't play, try this, try this, you know. So I suppose the, the chances are that actually probably he was only about 25, 26. Yeah, totally, yeah. So sure. in fact, he was enjoying the, the yeah. new music as much as anybody. That's right, that's right. I, I guess I guess so, yes. 10, 15 years older than we were. But, yeah. uh, but I remember one particularly rebellious uh, boy, um, we, we were listening to uh, an endless string quartet, 
because that was the sort of that was culture, yeah. you see. And we were all sitting there, and of course, everyone was bored to tears with it. I mean, they were terribly good, uh, but uh, somebody crept out and they uh, got the school gramophone and put on a bit of Bill Haley, <laughs> rock around the clock or something. It suddenly burst out, and this string quartet stopped. And I mean, all hell broke loose. The guy got expelled. Yeah, but he, but it's a big statement. You know, and you could see where it was going because uh, all the news about the riots in the cinemas and uh, stuff was going on. A terribly exciting time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, almost, you think of the sort of the early 60s, really. Yeah, yeah. But actually, it was particularly in America. Yeah. It was outrageous. People were thinking that this was the work of the devil. The work of the devil, absolutely, yeah. And <laughs> some of them still do. And it probably was. However, um, uh, but also during that time, um, I found myself... In all the school plays, I don't remember going. I must get into the school dramatic society. It just sort of happened. And the French master, who was um, I was lousy at French, uh, but but he was a really nice guy, and he was in charge of the the school plays and so on. And he picked me out and uh, gave me these rather rather decent roles. <laughs> in the school. You're quite tall, seemed, aren't you? So, I mean, it you... seemed like the most natural. Were you tall as a, as a boy? As yeah, well. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like a string bean, you know. I shot up to about six foot, and I was 14 or 15, and I was about that wide. <laughs> yeah. So that was great, uh, and I found I had a sort of facility for a mimicry, I suppose. Right. And uh, we had a chemistry master there who whistled on his S's, <laughs> which is, poor man, it was fatal. He was, he was quite a, he was a nice guy, but I, I had a great time. So this, you see. Which made you very popular and funny. And also, because there was a bullying culture, you know, there were boys who grew up quicker than the others and started pushing people around, and uh, they just had that quality. Every school has them. Mm. And I found it was a great way to deflect this, you know, because I was, I suppose, I mean, I had fingers pointed at me, oh, he's a bit of a pansy because he's, he's dressed up. But my plays. first part of school was that of a girl. <laughs> Alison Elliott in The Ladies Not For Burning. And very pretty I looked, too. I got a photograph of it, and uh, I don't look half bad, I can tell you. <laughs> and uh, I suddenly found at school I had, uh, had a, lot, a lot of friends I didn't know I had. <laughs> so I got the finger pointed at me a bit, and uh, always a bit mm, like this, but I could be sort of anything I wanted. So if I got threatened or something, I, I could put on the voice of a little girl or something like that, you see, because I was And, of course, they go, ooh, ooh, yes. ooh, ooh, and they'd all thunder off because they didn't know quite what they were dealing with. But, or I could be the headmaster, who's one of those, well, Charlie's, well, Victoria. See, I could do that, and I could do the chemistry master, and uh, so I could deflect an awful lot. I didn't do any work at all. <laughs> I mean, I was supposed to be learning maths and chemistry and physics and God knows what. Uh, but I, anything I wasn't interested in, I, I just I just didn't do any work out at all. And uh, I, I liked history, geography, the two Englishes, language and literature, and biology, because it was about plants and things. I had an interest in nature. how things grew. Nature, yeah, yeah. And those are the exams I finished up passing. The rest, forget it. Yeah. That thing of mimicry, though, mm. I, I was never very good at impersonating people, but I would—I had a chameleon nature at school, I remember, that I was able to sort of fit into their group, and then you didn't really stick out, so I did it by hiding within their group. Yeah. Did you have a preference? 
of which group? Well, I, I did have a preference. I had a preference for being on my own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the one I wanted. Yeah. Please leave me alone. It was a scary place in school, wasn't it? Yeah, it um, was. In my school, there were definite groups of boys who tried to sort of dominate others, you know. I, rem- I remember it at the time. And, and uh, it was the first thing. I mean, of course, it was the first um, sexual experience, I suppose, for a lot of kids. Mm. They were used and abused. Do you know, and uh, so you had to do, try like people and staff alike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had one kid who was mercilessly bullied. Um, he was a Jewish kid, and he uh, his fatal flaw was he, he was a bit of a swat. He had no prowess, physical prowess at all at sport, but of course he was forced into playing it, which which I looking back I think was a big mistake for him. And uh, you know he'd be in a game of rugby, inter house rugby, and uh, he'd get. Uh, get jumped on not only by the opposition, but also his own side. (laughs) And a poor kid finished up going berserk and uh, having to be taken away, and it had just got to him, you know. Just terrible, terrible Mm. thing. I just remember him. I I always always remember that. And that was a result of this treatment he got from uh, from other boys. One poor kid getting uh, locked in a laundry hamper, because uh, I, I can't remember what he'd done, you know, but and then put under a cold shower in the hamper and taken out and then um, covered in dubbing. Oh, my goodness. Which you put on your football boots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was sort of on the periphery of that, but I didn't intervene and say, stop, 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 which is probably what I should have done. But. No. Well, you never feel that you have the status to do that. No, You're no. not the main man, as it were. No, that's right. So even yeah. if you stepped you stepped in, it would be diverted to you. You would be the next person to get yeah, that's the right. bullying, as it were. I remember at school that actually when finally I did start to perform and uh, had something, something that gave me status, then I had the power to say to people, leave it, just forget it. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And they would, they would do it. Yeah. You know? so I sort of realised that that was the way to get through it, because mm. I could deflect practically everything. You know, and I was good at sliding out of things. And <laughs> what a wimp! What a coward! No, no, but, but uh, no, it's a survival, isn't it? It is, it is survival. It is. So, well, to remind you of that, we're going to take <coughs> your realization that moment when you've, you've sort of uh, yeah. you you start realizing that actually I can survive this if I if I do this, thing. Yeah. and then also that leading on to the fact of you realizing that this is what you wanted to yeah, do. Yes, the, the die was cast. Really, mm. I didn't realize quite that it was going to go on. Um, you never do at that age. No, 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 no. So you came out of there, and when you finished school, did you go to drama school or did you? No, no, I didn't. No, this is this is another moment, I suppose, which is a, a lucky sort of light bulb moment, I suppose. I always said I wanted to be an actor, um, and everybody put me off it, including my parents, of course, and the headmaster. Said, no, 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 safe, steady, secure job you need. Mm. Gaining practical experience while passing exams to qualify. You know, that was the mantra. Mm. And and quite right, I suppose, because people it's very insecure. Yes. Uh, it was as insecure then as it is now. And so I got article to uh, an estate agent for, through a contact of my grandfather's. And uh, I was hopeless. I, mean, <laughs> I, I just sat there and, um, you know, in some rural office somewhere, um, and I was hopeless at it, and I couldn't concentrate. And uh, I reverted to type and started impersonating clients and inventing spurious deals. And 
I got sacked. <laughs> yes. And my parents were extremely worried by this time. And uh, I just sort of, I was cast adrift, I suppose. And something made me go into W.H. Smith's and I picked up the stage. And very heavy it was, too. I can tell you, <laughs> yes. Uh, no. But I, on the back page, I don't know if you remember this, uh, they used to advertise jobs for actors. Mm. Do you remember? Yes, I think and they may was, still do that, don't they? They still do it? Do I think it? so. It's been years since I've looked at the stage, but I should yeah. imagine they would. Well, you haven't needed to, of course. No, no, no. 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 Who, who wants to work? <laughs> <laughs> Try and avoid it at all costs, yeah. Um, but it was an advertisement for a travelling children's theatre. Driving, preferable, but not essential. And I passed the driving test, you see. One of the only exams I ever passed in my life. And uh, I thought, oh, they might be interested in my silly voices and the fact that I could drive. And so I went to see someone who was, who was very interested and said, um, well, you can um, start next week, if you like. To. Fabulous. I had no idea what I was doing at all. Um, my parents were away at the time, and, uh, and I just left a note for them. And I, I actually packed a lot of stuff up, locked, locked the house up, and caught a train to Birkenhead. And I got off, and uh, there was this... Children's Theatre, and I spent the next few months travelling around in a in a van full of costumes, lighting, fit up Dexian stage. I think I fit up a whole stage and wings and everything, and uh, playing schools, different town every day, on the road, playing lots and lots of different characters, and uh, and driving, which I was quite good at, and uh, I loved it. I absolutely loved being on the road, and I, of course I started seeing parts of the country I'd never seen before. Liverpool, for instance, you know, Scotland. Yeah. And then I met someone who put me in the way of a repertory theatre. And, but that was another moment, I suppose. Yes, I, that I is went, a fabulous moment. Just reading that I don't know why, why, I do, why I do something. But, but again, it's sort of fate draws you, I think. I'm, I'm a believer in that. You're there for a reason, you know. And, uh, and there was this job and off I went. In the film of your life, it would, <clears> it would glow, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. My uh, my parents were, went crackers, of course, because because uh, they knew what I was like. I had such a butterfly mind. I you know I'd do something for five minutes, then think, oh, what's that round there? I'll go and do go and have a look at that. I'm always looking out of the windows. Well, so makes, so you thought that's a good driver. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but that was what was going to happen in their view that I was going to give that up after ten minutes and come back bedraggled yeah. and. Well, I didn't. I sort of stuck at it, and I, and I found that was what I wanted to do. Um, mm. What a brilliant job. What a brilliant first job, I have to say. Oh, no, yeah. It's it's what you dream of when you dream of becoming an actor. Yeah. Is that we don't stop. It's us, a little troop, and we're going off and yeah, we just yeah. do it. Like the old days, yeah. yeah. But the first, the first I, I was in two, two little companies of these uh, uh, travelling actors, and uh, the first one... First one, there was a Scottish maniac in he, who was a bully and um, not a very nice man at all and uh, kept sort of playing tricks. He's, he's great. He was one of these people who uh, sort of made up your bed so you couldn't get into it and, uh, and waited for you to come in and turn the lights off and, you know, and all that. How funny. Out. How Hilarious. Mm. Yeah. So uh, I had to deal with that, which um, which wasn't easy. But the second company I was in, uh, they said, oh, we, we'd like you to you continue. And I said, yes, but I don't want to work with, with this guy again. Yeah. Horrible man. Um, anyway, I went off in another company. It was lovely. We had such a lovely time, you know, about three months of it. So that was great. And then I went there, and then I got into uh, repertory, and, and of course, weekly rep. 
Yeah. And again, okay, you could play one character for a week, but the following week, you could play another guy, you know, and I loved it. And I, three, I don't know, three, four years or so. Wow. Going around the reps. And, and of course, that's, again, a, a terribly <clears throat> gruelling job. You've got to yeah. love it to do it because you're rehearsing during the day, mm. you're performing in the evening, and you're learning next week's, the week yeah. after next show. The How the hell time. do we do that? I, I don't have know. no idea. We did The Tempest in a week. <laughs> Really? I mean, I, okay, I was only playing Trinculo, which is which is fine, but, I mean, I don't think Prospero ever knew the words. No. I, I remember he had bits of the script in his cave. <laughs> he kept wandering into the cave. <clears throat> <clears throat> and then went back in the cave. But, God, it was, it was such fun. Brilliant fun. Yeah. So doing the tours <clears throat> around the schools for the <clears throat> children's tour, that would have got you an equity card. Yes, that's yeah. right. Um I'm sure it happens to you, people ask you, uh, how do I become an actor, you know? And, of course, it was pretty easy in our day, I guess, you know, yeah. if you had anything about you. Because he started off being a stage manager and an actor, because he would get up and get away with saying, the carriage awaits my lord or whatever yes. it is, and, and you could do yes. stage management. And eventually, uh, you know, you drop the stage management. And kind of, I was a hopeless stage manager because <laughs> I just wanted to be on the stage. And that sort of happened after a, after about a year. Just so, out of interest, so. but do you know your equity number? No. I only ask because I know that numerically they run in the order of when you joined equity. So for the first members of equity are number one, two, three, four. Oh, right, so yeah. So have you ever come across somebody who's got a really low equity number? Now the numbers are 500,000 and yeah, yeah, sure. 750. So it's just continued from there, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, so oh, right. mine's 936. Double nine six, I think so. I'm just before a hundred thousand actors had been in equity, oh, right. and I did work with some actors when I was a young man. Anthony Quayle, I worked with. His number was number thirteen. Really, that was his equity number. Good lord, yeah. So you can tell when people joined. Yeah, yeah, sure. I would imagine your number <laughs> is probably something like forty thousand. Yeah, yeah. I think I think there was a four in it. There I should remember. <laughs> but no, no, you got you got your equity going through the work you were doing. Yes. And, uh, yeah. So that's, well, that's lovely. I'm going to take you seeing that advert in the stage. Yeah. It jumping out at you and you're thinking, this is what I want to do. Yeah. This yeah. is it. Yeah. I don't want to sell houses. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no. Let's oh. take that. Let's put it in the time capsule. That's yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So that's two things we've got now. Right. So, um, don't forget, at one point, we're going to have to put something in there that you're glad to get rid of. Yes. But in the meantime, <laughs> let's move on to number three. OK, we're going to take a short break here for an advert. We'll be back in a moment. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome back. Okay, let's get straight back to John Chalice and find out what else he would like to put in his time capsule. So your career is going very well. You're starting to get lots of work in rep. Mm. How did it branch out into the, the other world of films and television that you've done? Well, I, uh, I then got a job in the West End. The West End. Mm. The vaudeville set in Strand, Portrait of a Queen, it's all about Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. Um, and I was given uh, the part of a gentleman of the press from the funder of the Times, you know, and they'd taken offence at something Prince Albert had said because he was, like, was absolutely outrageous. You know, one of those, about ten lines. But there I was on the West End stage. Mm. I mean, I just couldn't believe I was there. And after a week, it was cut. <laughs> no. Yeah, because the play was too long and they were looking for cuts and mine was the least significant part, so... So I spent the rest of a whole year uh, <clears throat> moving furniture and uh, understudying, oh, which God. was a big disappointment. But during that time, I'd uh, auditioned for the Royal Shakespeare Company, which is a place I really wanted to be, you know, because Peter Hall just taken over and it was so exciting, all that stuff. Mm. And uh, so you get on very well. And uh, yes, uh, you know, we're, we're interested in you joining the company. But of course, I couldn't because I was in the West End play. still Moving furniture. Yeah. And I oh. went... Oh, have you ever got to the Royal Shakespeare Company? Since? I did. You did? I, it was the luckiest damn thing in the world because um, Portrait of a Queen finished and I went home on the weekend thinking, what the hell am I going to do next? My agent rang up and said, the RSC have been on, they wanted to join the company, a, a space has just become available. And I, I remember thinking, I thought everybody said this was difficult, this profession. <laughs> I seemed to be just going from one job to, to another. But, of course, I was only on that level. Because there'd been some bust-up with two actors at the RSC and they fought, I mean, like, seriously fought. And they both got sacked. Wow. So this is how this vacancy occurred. And I suddenly found myself in Peter Hall's Hamlet, David Warner's... Do you remember the day David Warner's... The great David Warner. Yeah. That great company. And there I was, and... uh, Shifting furniture. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But um, what happened was that I got uh, the part of the poisoner in the placing. And I, I remember going to uh, sort of read for it. Peter Hall was there and uh, Morris Daniels, the casting guy, or Doris Manuels, as he was known, <laughs> him saying something very unpromising to Peter Hall, saying, uh, just uh, stand up at the end of the room, will you, John? It's, it's mainly a question of height, isn't it, Peter? And I went, Hmm. <laughs> Great, oh. thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Doris. I thought. <laughs> well, I didn't think that, but uh, anyway, I read it and, uh, and I got the part. And uh, so I was the poison and placing. Bloody hell! There I am in the West End again, the old witch. I thought this is this is this is easy. Yeah. And then it transferred to Stratford. So there I am on stage at Stratford, doing the poison and placing. The, uh, and uh, Henry the Fourth, Part One, Part Two, Henry the Fifth, Ian Holm playing Hal, 
Paul Rogers, full staff. Do you know, wow. it was just an amazing time. Diana Rigg in Twelfth Night, with Ian Holm as Malvolio. And, uh, and I had speaking parts in everything except the Twelfth Nights, where I, uh, I was a, a courtier, sort of lounging about in Orsino's uh, mm. court. Not providing the music? No, the food no, no. No, but it was just an amazing time. That was mid-60s, I suppose. Um, How long were you there? Just a year. Wow. I got on with Ian home very well. We played tennis together, and I, I don't know, we just had a connection. And uh, he put a word in for me, because he saw me understudying... David Waller as Worcester in Henry the Fourth. Seemed to be very impressed. He said, "He said to me, I'm, I'm going to talk to uh, Peter." I said, oh, So uh, it's my turn to go and see the headmaster. It was just like going to see the headmaster again. And Peter Hall, I forgot because I was quite excited by this, obviously. And, uh, and Peter Hall looked at me and said, "Well, we have had a good season, haven't we? We're very pleased." And I thought. And he said, "We'd very much like you to stay on." Uh, in the company, because you're such a good walk-on. Oh, no. Can you imagine the deflation? Hmm, I can. Uh, so it's, it's up to you, really, but uh, I can't sort of promise you anything. Mm. So I left. Anyway, television was, you know, 67, 68, a lot of telly about, you know, because it was the coming thing, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. So I thought, um, move on, I suppose. And I got, I, you know, I got on the telly quite quickly, um, Newcomers. The Newcomers, it was called, one of the first of the soap operas, and I got a nice part in that. And this was when uh, the great disappointment happened. Oh, right. So this is, because this is the one we're going to put in there that you... Yes, this is like where I was waiting of. I was waiting to start that. And the word came out that the Beatles were looking for someone to be in the magical mystery tour. <laughs> there was a part they couldn't find the right person for, so the world and his wife was going up for it, you can imagine. So my agent sort of said, well, everybody else has been up for it. You might as well get yourselves. Mate, the Beatles, you know, I mean, they were the, the real height of it then. Um, anyway, something clicked and I thought, right, I'm going to have a go at this because you only get one chance. And uh, in I went. And uh, George Harrison wasn't there. And he was my favourite Beatle. <laughs> so I said to the other three, I said, uh, <clears throat> I thought there were four of you. Which is a good start, because Lennon said, no, George is just a cardboard cut out. <laughs> we sacked him years ago. <laughs> you see? And uh, <clears throat> so we got off quite well, and we, we found something in common, because uh, we both loved The Goon Show. About the same age as John Lennon, see? And we both grown up The Goon, and he, he had that sort of madcap sort of humour. And uh, so I found myself doing uh, Goon Show voices with John Lennon. Hello, John. How are you today? <laughs> <laughs> I'm all right, John, and how are you today? Paul McCartney sitting in the corner going, oh, God, so Yeah, I mean, uh, extraordinary. <clears throat> anyway, he sort of went on from there, and uh, he said, look, we don't know what we're doing. We haven't got a script or anything like that, so we're looking for people with ideas. Have you got a favourite Beatles tune? John. Uh, well, I said something then that still haunts me to this day, because really, um, I said, actually, I prefer the Rolling Stones. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of, you know, when it something blurts out of your mouth and you haven't engaged the breath. And I just went, what? I mean, what have you done? You just blown it. I mean, you're getting on so well. And and I was waiting to be shown the door, and eventually a uh, long pause, and Lennon says, "Actually, I think you're right. I prefer them sometimes too." <laughs> yeah, very good. <laughs> <laughs> 
and he had that that sort of humour, you know. He said, mm. anyway, listen, listen, we start on Monday, you know, what do you fancy getting on the coach? You know, we don't know what we do, we don't know where we're going, but we'll see what happens, we'll have a blast. I always remember him saying, we'll have a blast. Yeah. So come and join us. And I got the job. Fantastic. And I walked out of there going, I must be the luckiest uh, person in the world, you know, even though I prefer the Rolling Stones. <laughs> I said, well, I'll just work with these guys before I meet my real heroes, you know. And I just thought, wait till I tell everybody this, you know. Christ. But I was unavailable. No. Yeah, I didn't I didn't realise. Uh, I didn't realise at the time that I'd said yes to the newcomers and the dates clashed by two days and the BBC wouldn't release me. Can you imagine? Oh, John. So I, I'd like to forget that one, if I, oh, but, I, but I, it still haunts me, as I say. What if? It's one of those, you know, we've all got them in our lives. What if? What yes. would have happened if? Yes. And, of course, I never saw them again. No. But I, I really felt I had a connection with, with Lennon. Oh, that's really and tragic. I just, I... Oh, I have a feeling I would have just walked out of the BBC job. But you'd never work again, would you? No. And of course, you know, BBC has been very, very good to me. I suppose you know, worked a lot for the BBC uh, since then. They owed it to me. (laughs) Bloody right, they did. (laughs) So I don't know if that uh, counts as the. uh, Oh, I think it does. I think it does. We're going to put that in there, deep, deep inside that time capsule. Yeah, yeah. That would almost uh, wake you up at night. That thought. Yeah. Oh, it did, it did for a long time. I thought, I remember saying to my agent, can't I get out of it? Please, let I mean, come on. Now, the only compensation is it's a terrible film. I know. Uh, that That's right. You're absolutely right. Mm. It got hammered, didn't it? Hammered. They spent yeah. a fortune on it. Although they I never did... saw it. I never saw it. I was so upset. I never saw it. No, I'm sure. But they did, they did film for months, John. You would have been working forever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, as I said, I remember him saying, we don't know what we're doing, you know, we'll just we'll see what happens, really, you know. And they did a lot of running about and looning about. and But it was some some good songs, not not their best, though, no. well, for me, anyway. But, God, what a moment. Oh, anyway. Well. well, at least you met them. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you can take that away, but uh, certainly the moment of finding that the work clashes and you can't yeah. do it must have been awful. We've all had those moments, but that's oh, one of the worst I've heard, John. Oh, really. is it? Yeah. Uh, Oh, good. Yeah, no, no, good. So it's gone. Let's bury it. Yes. Oh, you poor thing. Yeah, 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 that's right. Lovely. Okay. Anyway, lots of, uh, lots of, I'm going to tell you, I'm doing lots of cameo roles in so many series. And you did Z Cars, didn't you? I did Z Cars, yeah. What they call a semi-regular mm-hmm. station sergeant part. Um, yeah. And it was just in the station picking up the phone saying, uh, oh, hello, Mr. Johnson, yeah. is the cat up the tree again, is it? No. No, the cat's all right. Your daughter's up a tree. No, you know. <laughs> no, not really. But I mean, it's that sort it's a of shame. You should have done. Morning, that would have made much better. Morning, Sarge. Hello, wonderful. Um, <laughs> I mean, all that, all that going on. But I was thrilled by that. I thought Z Cars was was so groundbreaking, wasn't it? Yes, the it first was. of the gritty, yeah, police series. And uh, so I'd, I'd love to have been out in the cars arresting people. You know, that's what I really wanted to do. But mm. uh, anyway. And I suppose with all that work, just regularly working and lots of mm. work around, by the time somebody says to you, you want to play this character in Only Fools and Horses, it might not be, you know, it might just be one episode, we're not sure. Mm. Uh, you sort of go, yeah, it's another job. And then it becomes yeah. that sort of thing that, that bizarrely defines your <clears throat> career almost. Oh, yes. I, I mean, this happened uh, ages later, uh, Only Fools. But, but you're, then but you're, you're right, nobody, nobody ever said anything. No. Nobody said... The character's going to come back. Nobody ever said, 
there was going to be a second series. Mm. And it was really lucky that there was a second series, right? But I, I mean, how I got there is, I think, quite interesting because I got a bit disillusioned and I, uh, <laughs> typical me, I went off and said, oh, I'll do something else now. Mm. So I opened a garden centre. <laughs> really? As you do, but it was a disaster because it was the big drought, 1976. And hosepipe banned, everything, the whole thing went tits up. And uh, I felt pretty down, really. But luckily, a director I worked for before called Douglas Canfield uh, rang up and said, Oh, I, th- I hear you've uh, given up the um, profession. Is that right? You sh- probably should have done, he said by now. But um, <laughs> And he had this great this part in Doctor Who, six parter with Tom Baker. So do, do, do you fancy it, you know? And uh, I said, oh, I don't know. And, and then he told me it was Doctor Who. And I said, you know, when do we start? Mm. <laughs> and it was just what I needed was another kick up the backside to yeah. push me in the direction I should have been going in the first place. It's just that, you know, the gaps between jobs became bigger and I thought, oh, this isn't working out, you know. So I sort of decided it wasn't for me, but it was. And uh, Doctor Who sort of really started something, you know. Because I loved it. It was one of the happiest jobs I ever did. That. So that Doctor Who, really, that's a thing that changed, yeah. changed the way you're Yeah, because, because I, I, got a, I got a part in the, uh, the Orange Tree in Richmond in a Vashlav Harvel play, which Tom Stoppard came to see. And uh, he sought me out afterwards. And uh, I sort of, sort of vaguely recognised him. I didn't know who it was. And he said, I very much enjoyed your, your performance. And I went, oh, thank you very much. Um, got to buy me a drink then. I said something cheeky like that. He said, uh, no, he said, uh, um, my name is Tom Stoppard. No, yeah. Bloody hell, it is Tom Stoppard. Um, <laughs> and they said, I'd like you to be in one of my plays. <laughs> I mean, um, and I finished up in Dirty Linen in the West End, which also went to South Africa, which was just on the cusp of post-apartheid and all that. Mm. But then I took over Dirty Linen in the West End and uh, became part of the British American Repertory Company, first of its kind. Half the company was British, half American. Mm. It finished up with Dirty Linen on Broadway. Wow. And I don't know about you, but I mean, the first time ever in New York, it just blows you away, you know. Um, seen it on the movies, read about it, but you just go, oh, wow. And to actually be on Broadway was just, I mean, just one of the great thrills of all time, you know. I've been... I mean, you know, the West End, the Stratford, and now I'm on Broadway. And mm. I think, God, I must be the luckiest person in the world. Went on tour, and we finished up in Boston. And then uh, I, I thought America was the answer to everything. I mean, I, I got seduced by it. Mm. You know, I'm not ashamed to admit it. Uh, a lot of people say nice things to you when you're in America. And, you know, well, I come and meet my agent in L.A. I mean, he'd love you. I mean, you know, you do very well. And uh, my agent said, have you been offered a part in a new comedy series? And... Um, over here, you're coming back to do it. What are you doing? Make up your mind. The real crossroads there. As near as a toucher, I stayed in America. Um, I met someone and I thought, <clears throat> if I get married, I'll get a green card. And I was going through all that right. stuff. But I thought, well, I'd better go back uh, just to keep my hand in, in case things don't work out. And this was a part in uh, John Sullivan's Citizen Smith. With Robert Lindsay, mm-hmm. part of a policeman. I played so many policemen. I thought, oh, what can I do? It's a bit different about this policeman. And I remember this guy in uh, in a local pub who had this curious, pedantic way of talking, like this, you see, and uh, rather superior. So not for any particular reason. Bit of a Walter Mitty character. 
So I uh, invested this policeman with a few of his characteristics. And John Sullivan came up and he said, he said, I really like that. He said, he said I'm going to try and use that again one day. Little did I know at the time what it was going to lead to, because yeah. the following year, the script came through and would I play a small cameo role with second-hand car salesman in Only Fools and Horses? Mm. I said, yeah, it made me laugh. I know it's a funny show. And uh, so I said, yeah, it's just another cameo role. And I was back to doing all those sort of things. And um, I suppose the rest is history. Yes, indeed. But nobody said anything at the time. Nobody said, oh, we want it to be a regular character. No. And, you know, here we are all these years later, and it's still on. It's still on gold uh, every day. Basically. Every day. I mean, that was a great moment, was, uh, you know, will you do a spin-off series, you know, with, with Sue Green, Green and Arling. Mm-hmm. We both, I remember just looking at each other going, because I didn't see it coming at all. John Sullivan came to see us in a play in Brighton and took us out to tea and uh, and he <laughs> oh god it's all tied up you see and it all was inspired by the fact that Carol and I had moved down to Herefordshire this extraordinary place luckiest thing we ever did as it turned out great moment you know leaving London and so on and really striking out on our own uh, and uh, John Sullivan came to a sort of a I suppose it's sort of housewarming party. It happens to be my 60th birthday. And he, I remember him saying, uh, halfway through the afternoon, he said, I've had a bit of an idea. He said, I'll get back to you. And Sue was sort of uh, with me. And she said, oh, she said, oh, that sounds interesting. And uh, so we waited. Mm-hmm. Two years later, <laughs> again, we're doing a, you know, we're doing a show together. And um, he came to see it and he took us out and he pitched the idea of the, the green, green grass. Wow. And we just thought, I mean, you talk about extremes of emotion, because one was, wow, God, how flattered we are. And the other one was, Christ, how do you follow any fools? And I've got to carry this thing. Yeah, so, yes, yeah, that's right. Leading, we'd been supporting players for so long, but I hadn't had the leading parts, you know, and mm. uh, suddenly there we were with all the work to do. And I suddenly saw what David Jason meant. I do all the work and then Boise and Trigger come on and get all the last. Fucking charming. You know, he, he, yeah. he was always going yeah. on about that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's often the case when you're playing the lead. Well, it is. Because you're laying the plot, you know, and some of John's plots was pretty complicated. You know? Yeah. So so that was a... That was four moment. series you did of that. Yeah. We had a lovely time, you know. And yeah. Smashing company and... And it was just fun. Well, I'm going to take that moment of you in being in New York and thinking, do I stay here? Do I stay here on Broadway? Crossroad, real crossroad. Or do I go back and do this small part? And and had you not come back, who knows, you could now be a major film star. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. That was the trouble with those moments, isn't it? You think... You don't know. I'd like to go back there and turn left instead of right or go straight on instead of... Just to see what happened, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we could do it. But of course you never can. No, you never can. No. I mean, another great moment was uh, meeting Carol. I mean, you think about that, getting off the theatrical thing. Yeah. But that's, again, it's the luckiest thing in the world, that, for me, because I was in a bit of a bad state. I mean, not bad, but I mean, not very good. I was working quite a lot, but um, my parents had died, um, you know, quite closely. My third marriage had just broken up, and. Uh, yeah, I went to the pub, as you do. Mm. And there's a lot of mates there also in the pub with the stories to tell. And, of course, you're all clustered together and you drink too much. And So I got into that state. But, again, I was very lucky because uh, I met Carol and things changed. And we finished up 
leaving London and moving to that house and yes. changed our lives completely. You know? And you would, uh, some people might say, well, three marriages, you're not the man who's going to survive. No, and obviously not very good. You start, time, you start you? blaming yourself. That's the yeah, yeah. me. I suppose well, it is, because you married the wrong people for whatever reason. You know? mm. um, so lucky at that sort of stage to, to meet someone who's going to help sort things out for you, I suppose. Yeah. I could still be bouldering away in a two-bedroom flat in Mortlake, <laughs> drinking too much. Well, I think if you'd stayed there, you wouldn't be here. No, no, no. well, absolutely. Yeah. And here I am talking to you. I mean, I know, yeah, the you know, height of your career. Broadway, West End, Royal Shakespeare Company. The Beatles. The Beatles. <laughs> and now me. Yeah, oh, brilliant. Fantastic. Well, we're, okay. then I'm going to put, put Carol in there with you. Uh, and you yeah, do. I mean, because it's you know, a very important part of my life. That really. Yeah. Um, I'm very lucky. John, thank you so much. Thank you. you. Lovely to talk to you. Lovely Mm. to see you. Johnny Good. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, John Chalice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Acast, Spotify, or iTunes, or your own favorite podcast provider. And, in fact, we'd love it if you would rate us and leave a review. Thank you very much. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You just search at MyTCPod or at Fenton Stevens. This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens, and the music is by Pass the Peas Music. It was a cast-off production. Right, I'm off to listen to some Beatles. I've always preferred them to the Rolling Stones. Cheers. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.